This morning's reading is from Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be your old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. This is the word of the Lord. All right. It is so good to see you and so good to be together this morning. We have been looking at the book of Exodus throughout this semester, seeing how God draws his people out of oppression and slavery, and then he draws them in, draws them into his presence, into his life. And uh, what we're looking at today is one of the most important events in human history, which is observed with one of the most widely celebrated meals in all of human history. And I know you're thinking that's, that's kind of a lot. Is that an overstatement? I get pastors are prone to, you know, big statements all the time. But it really is true. If you think about it, the Passover is, is at the center of Judaism. It's practiced in Islam. It's celebrated every single Sunday in Christianity when we take the Lord's Supper, which is a fulfillment, we believe, of the Passover. And so this is the most widely celebrated meal in human history. And if you think about it, we, we have a way, all people have a way of celebrating important moments in life with meals. Like we always have to have food around. This week, uh, one of my sons, my youngest son, Jack, won an award at school. And so immediately we said, let's go out to dinner. Or, you know, you can pick any restaurant in the city. Where do you want to go? Uh, he picked Chick-fil-A. I was hoping for like barbecue or steak, but he picked the gospel bird. It's fine. 
But it, it's almost as if something, something hasn't fully happened or we haven't fully experienced what's great until we've celebrated it with food and drink. And I, I think that's because the food is, is a tangible, physical expression of what we're celebrating. We, we struggle to, to just celebrate in our minds and our hearts, but the food makes it a little bit more real to us. And it's the same way with the Passover event, this great moment of, of redemption and salvation in the lives of the Israelites. It's followed by this incredible meal. And actually, some of the meal comes beforehand. God actually requires them or calls them to begin enacting the meal, begin celebrating their own deliverance before it even comes. And so this is a, a, a hugely important moment, not just for the people of Israel, but for us as Christians today. Because it's only in Christianity that we see that this is a preview. It's a preview of the true and final Passover, the ultimate sacrifice. One that meant spiritual freedom, not just for one people group, one ethnic group, but for all people groups, for all nations. And so we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. The Passover lamb, the true and final lamb, and then lastly, the feast of the lamb, which is a phrase that comes from Revelation 19. So the Passover lamb first. Now, you heard in the reading, what does the, the story tell us? If we go back to last week's passage, which was Exodus 5 through 10, we see in Exodus 5 that God sends Moses to talk to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to say, let my people go that they may worship me. Now, Pharaoh's response, his question actually sets the stage for the next about 10 chapters because he responds, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? It's not that he doesn't believe in any gods. It's that he believes in his own gods. Israel can have their gods, but why on earth would I believe in somebody else's God? From chapters 5 to 10, we see a series of nine plagues that are released on Egypt. The Nile turns to blood, frogs cover the land, livestock die, hail rains down, and then darkness covers the land for three days. Each time, Pharaoh's heart remains hard, and he will not let the people go. And so these plagues are a, a response to the question, who is the Lord? And it's a way to show us that the God of Israel is a God of unmatched power, but he's also a God of justice. He's a God of mercy, a God of grace. Most importantly, God is a good father who will stop at nothing to defend his children. Now, this is the 10th and final plague because Pharaoh still will not let the Israelites go. And so we see in verse 3, God gives these instructions. Tell the whole community of Israel to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Take care of them to the 14th day, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so what is the meaning of this sacrificial lamb? In ancient cultures, the, the central unit of the society was not the individual, but it was the family. In our Western culture, the central unit is, is the individual. We're a very individualistic society. But in Near Eastern cultures, the central unit was the family. And so back then, you didn't really have individual wealth. There was family wealth. 
And in this society, the firstborn son was like the pride and joy of the family. The firstborn son would inherit the family wealth and be the steward of the family wealth. And what would happen is if anybody in the family committed a a serious enough crime, the entire family would have to pay. It wouldn't just be the individual that committed the crime or stole the money, whatever it was. The entire family could be held liable. And if the crime was severe enough, the family would have to offer up their firstborn son. They would have to give up their firstborn son, whether it was to death or to slavery, to make amends for the wrong that the family member had done. That gives a little more context to Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And to our Western minds, this is an atrocity. And we ask, why on earth would God ask Abraham to give up his only son, Isaac? But in that culture, it would have been clear that Abraham was guilty of sin, that his whole family was guilty of sin. And because the sin was against God, God could rightfully call for the firstborn son as payment for that sin. The only way for Abraham and his family to be set free was the death of their firstborn son. And yet, if you know the story, in the moment before Abraham brought down the sword on his son, the angel stopped him. And God made a way, God provided an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that would cover his sins and the sins of his family. A ram caught in the bushes was sacrificed in the place of the son. Now, back to Exodus 12. Previously, Egypt has killed the sons of Israel. That's something they've been doing for decades. And so, in a sense, this is simply their, their, uh, their plague on Israel coming back on them. Their mistreatment of Israel coming back on them. All the other plagues fell on the Egyptians, but didn't fall on the Israelites. But this one now is going to fall on everybody. I don't know if you caught that in the story, but all the other plagues, they were happening everywhere except Goshen, which was the land where the Israelites were living. But it doesn't say that as long as you're in the land of Goshen, you'll be fine. No, it says that the angel of destruction will come to everyone. There will be a death in every single household. The only question is, will it be the death of a child or the death of a lamb? God allows for this sacrificial offering to be made in place of the firstborn son. They had to take a firstborn lamb who is spotless and not crippled or lame or blind. And they, if they killed the lamb in place of the firstborn son, the angel of the Lord would see the blood on the doorpost and pass over the house. And so it was through atoning sacrifice that that family would be spared. The blood on the doorpost was a way of saying that a death has already occurred here. No more payment is needed. Nothing else needs to be done. This household has been covered. We see this later in the sacrificial system of Israel, where you see a a number of different offerings in the Day of Atonement, where a lamb is sacrificed and the sins of Israel are symbolically placed onto the lamb before it's killed. And all of these things, we see the message, the the Bible-long story of the atoning sacrifice. And so it happens in verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. And during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go and worship the Lord as you have requested. And so in the middle of the night with their coats tucked in and their shoes on as they were eating the meal, now they, they exit, they leave Egypt. And it says that it was 600,000 men plus women and children and many other people in 12 verse 38. 
and that many other people was likely the, the other slaves from other nations, as well as possibly Egyptians, who saw what was happening in their land and decided to trust in the God of Israel. So it's again a preview that God is making a way for all nations to come to him. And so they leave in the night and they begin a 40-year journey in the wilderness. Now, the second thing is the true and final Passover lamb. Hopefully your mind is already buzzing with all the, the New Testament parallels and you're thinking, could it be that the gospel turn has come this early on only page two? You're used to it on page four, but here it is. Jesus is the true and final Passover lamb. If you remember what John the Baptist said the first time he saw Jesus when they were adults. In John 1, John was baptizing in the Jordan River. It crowds around him like normal. And we saw Jesus of Nazareth approaching. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew something about this Jesus when he looked at him. The Holy Spirit revealed something to John in that moment, and he was saying, this is Jesus, the very Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And Israel had been waiting for a Messiah, waiting for for centuries, waiting for thousands of years. And yet they thought that this Messiah was going to look different. They thought that he was going to come with with military power and and to, to establish his kingdom here and now on earth. But John knew that the Messiah wouldn't just be the Son of God, he would also be the Lamb of God. That he would also be the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah had been talking about. And Jesus, yes, he is the Son of God on the throne, but he's also the Lamb of God on the cross. And to behold him is to look on him, to praise him, to adore him, to commit your entire way of life to him. 1 Peter 1 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is the firstborn Son of God. He is the heir to everything that belongs to God. He is God's pride and joy, and yet... Though he was without sin, all of us cannot say that. All mankind has sinned against God. And so the penalty for our sins is death and payment must be made. But God allowed for a firstborn son, a lamb, to take our place. Jesus' death on the cross was everything that the Passover was pointing to. An innocent firstborn male killed for the protection of his people, an atoning sacrifice so that all might believe in him would be covered by his blood. We get to go free in the night and escape the judgment. No further payment is required. Nothing else is needed. It is finished. Just like the ninth plague, while Jesus was on the cross, darkness fell all over the land. It says it was a darkness that could be felt. That's because creation, which was held together by Jesus himself, was coming apart at the seams, falling into chaos and disorder. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus was resurrected on the third day. And we have to remember this every single time we remember the cross and we remember the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, that he didn't stay dead. 
Jesus' death was payment for our sins. It's what forgives us of our sins when we put our faith in him. But the fact that he didn't stay dead tells us so much. It shows us the power and the love of God. But it also shows us that if Jesus only died for our sins, we might have a clear record, we might have our debt canceled, but Christianity is so much more than that. Christianity is not just getting a a get-out-of-jail-free card or or get-out-of-hell and be sure that you'll go to heaven when you die. Christianity is about a new life with God. And the resurrection is the moment that starts that entire new way of life, pointing to a final redemption, the renewal of all things, the resurrection of all who believe in Jesus. Just as Israel was set free from spiritual darkness, slavery, and sin, just as they were set free for life with God, so it is with us. We've been drawn out, drawn out of our old lives that we might be drawn in into the presence of God. It's about deliverance, and it's about his presence. Now here's the last thing, the Feast of the Lamb. You might ask, well, Jews and Muslims celebrate this Passover meal, but we know that it points to Jesus, and so it means so much more. How are we as a people to celebrate this incredible moment and this incredible meal? There's three responses I think we can have. The first is to remember God's faithfulness. One of the things we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus is God calling back to what he has done for them. Once, Exodus, or once Israel is free, it says this in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He is a God who keeps his promises. We saw in the first week of our Exodus study that things kept going from bad to worse from Israel. It keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and it's about to happen again. It's a little spoiler alert, but this isn't the last we're going to see of the Egyptians as they're followed out into the wilderness. The thing we said that first week was that suffering prepares the way for salvation. See, suffering is not a sign that God's not with you. We see this all over the scriptures, that God's people are mistreated, oppressed, sick, in danger. There's threats against them. There's opposition to their work. Suffering's not a sign that God isn't with you. Suffering is a sign that God is preparing you for something, preparing you for some type of salvation. And so remember his faithfulness. Look back in the scriptures at at the record of God's promise keeping. Look at your own life and the lives of others to see what God has done in his faithfulness towards them. Don't merely look forward to circumstances getting better, but look back. Look back on all that God has done, all that we know that God is for us. And so remember God's faithfulness. Here's the second thing. Behold the lamb in worship and prayer. What Moses said when he came into the presence of Pharaoh every time was not simply let my people go, but let my people go that they might worship me. That was God's message, that they might worship me. And so what does it look like to to behold the lamb on this side of the cross? It looks like prayer and worship. 
Prayer includes meditating on God's word, sitting and waiting in his presence, considering God's attributes, the things that are true of him, seeking his face, asking for what you need and want, thanking him for all he's provided. We think of Jesus as the Lamb of God. We pray through his teachings and miracles. We think of the Holy Spirit, his empowering presence in our lives. If there's one thing I've experienced in this church in the last few years is that it's that our prayer lives are better together. One of the things we've done over the last two and a half years in particular is commit to praying together. And for me in my own prayer life, it's been absolutely transformative. We're far stronger together in prayer than we are individually. I love praying alone. I think private prayer is an incredible gift from the Lord. But when we pray together, there's an additional strength. There's less distraction. There's more beauty. There's relationship there. And so I want to encourage you. We'll get to the announcements at the end. But we have Friday night prayer this week. We have 24-hour prayer where you can sign up for slots to pray for the city and for the nations. These are, these are merely tools and resources we want to give you to help you in cultivating a life of prayer. But the thing is, as soon as you're in prayer, you find yourself in worship. In two weeks, we'll see when Israel moves through the waters of judgment, when they get to the other side of the Red Sea, they're still in the wilderness. They haven't made it to the promised land, but the very first thing they do is stop and call for a worship gathering. They sacrifice animals. They sing a new song. They stop everything they're doing and they simply praise God. They build a memorial to him and they sing his praises. They sing a new song. Our worship centers on Jesus, but it should be the same with us. Sing his praises. Don't just sing his praises when you feel like it, but sing his praises until you feel like it. Sing until your heart is caught up in the presence of God. So third, the final thing, savor the feast of the lamb. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church, Christ is our Passover lamb, therefore let us keep the festival. And the festival that he's referring to is not merely a a religious following of the Passover, but he's saying, keep the feast, keep the celebration, keep your hope alive, keep encouraging one another, keep meeting together, keep celebrating all that God has done for you in Christ. When Jesus gathered his disciples for the Passover feast, the very night before he died, he wasn't just celebrating the Passover, he was fulfilling it. Something I never thought about until studying for this passage this week, in the Hebrew tradition, the family at Passover would always have three elements present. The unleavened bread, the wine, and the lamb. And so the host would, would stand and would, would break the bread and would pour out the wine and would, would give out the lamb, and that would be the three elements of the Passover meal. Well, we see at the Last Supper, when it's Jesus and his disciples, Jesus stands up and he breaks the bread, but he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant, which is my blood shed for you. And there's no mention of a lamb. The disciples might have been looking around like, where's the lamb? Who forgot the lamb? Whose responsibility was it? But Jesus was doing something very intentional. The lamb indeed was at the meal. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The bread and the wine was there and the lamb was there too. 
a way for Jesus to say, I am the atoning sacrifice. My death will be required tomorrow. There is no other way. The thousands of years of all of these offerings and the day of atonement, which came every single year, it was not enough to fully set people free. And so Jesus' giving of his own life was the final sacrifice. Now, as I said at the beginning, the Feast of the Lamb is a future promise we see in Revelation 19. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God not once or a few times, but 31 times. Over and over, Jesus is envisioned in the new creation or in heaven as the Lamb of God. In chapter 19, the angel says, Blessed are those who are, who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 15, there is a series of plagues on the world, seven plagues that represent finality and completeness. But all who believe in the Lamb of God are spared. God is not unjust. He's not harsh. He's not cruel. But he's telling us, I'm trying to set you free. I have come to rescue you. And the punishment that we deserve has been transferred to the innocent Lamb. Now, you remember how the Israelites were told to, to celebrate and to participate in the Passover with their coats tucked in, with their shoes on, ready for action, ready to run, in a hurry. When we look at the Last Supper, we see Jesus' disciples just lounging. I mean, their shoes are off. Jesus has washed their feet. They're completely at rest with Jesus. That's because they were in the presence of what everything else was pointing to. They had nowhere else to go. The whole journey, the whole trek through the wilderness, it was all to get in the presence of the Lord. And once they were there, they knew it and they could rest. All who believe in Christ are invited to this eternal feast. And all who have not yet believed in him, there's the wonderful invitation, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world.